Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Welcome to Something Strange and Terrible, The Ghost Stories of Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Three Times Chapter One The First Time the last night of Herr Rudolf Prusinowski and the performing lions, under the distinguished patronage of their majesties Queen Victoria, the Emperor of China, the Cham of Tartary, His Serene Highness the Grand Duke of Baden, Simeon Muddlebrain, Esquire MP, the Mayor and Corporation of Spindlecombe, and other august personages too numerous to mention. Come and see the lions. The great Prusinowski has had the honour of performing before the Mikado of Japan. The world-renowned Prusinowski has been decorated with the Order of Rouge et Noir by the Grand Duchess of Selzer-Wasserberg. Don't miss the lions. The above sentences, and many others of the same character, in which a picturesque fancy, aided by the experience of a public career, trifled with the sobrieties of fact, and tripped lightly across the borderland of fiction, appeared in gigantic black letters upon a yellow poster on the side wall of the Queen's Theatre, Spindlecombe, and in the streets and marketplace upon the quays, and in the back slums of the same town. Spindlecombe was a large manufacturing town, a town that did a good deal of business in the export way, and had much commerce by land and sea. And Spindlecombe could boast of two theatres. The Royal, an elegantly appointed edifice in a side street off the quay, with a stone portico surmounted by a bust of Shakespeare, a house about which elderly inhabitants of Spindlecombe cherished the traditions of Edmund Keane, and where Macready and Harley were remembered as stock actors. But a house which had never paid a manager within the memory of man, and the Queen's, a vast barn-like building, with a lofty roof supported by iron girders, three tiers of boxes, and alpine heights in the way of galleries, which, contemplated from the broad valley of the pit, seemed inaccessible to the foot of man. 
The Queen's was making a fortune for its managers. There was a sixpenny pit and there was a threepenny gallery, whereby the house was never empty and on Mondays and Saturdays overflowed with noisy human life. The audience at the Queen's was critical, but on the whole good-natured, requiring plenty of life and movement in the pieces, and what may be called showy action in the performers. The Queen's liked stars, and was tolerably universal in its appreciation of these luminaries, this week clamorous in their applause of some stalwart Othello or loud-voiced Hamlet, next week gaping entranced upon the contortions of a family of acrobats, now crowding to see Mr Reginald Montmorency and his celebrated mare Black Bess in the grand spectacular drama of Dick Turpin or The Ride to York, anon rushing to behold Signor Poloni and his striped zebra of the prairie. A man with a pale sallow face, blue chin and close-cut hair sat in a lounging attitude upon the low wall opposite the stage door of the Queen's smoking a meditative pipe and contemplating the big yellow poster with a dreamy fondness. He had a little group of satellites about him, also close-cropped, blue-chinned and tobacco-consuming, minor lights in the dramatic heaven, the stock company of the Queen's, who were thrown a little into the background by the Lions, shuffling through a preliminary melodrama nightly, before an audience who beheld them with impatience and heard them sometimes with derision, eager for the grand business of the evening. "'I think that ought to hit em up,' said the hare thoughtfully. He spoke excellent English for a foreigner, but seemed scarcely to have acquired the language in the most aristocratic or aesthetic circles. "'The Mikado looks well, doesn't he?' First rate!' replied Mr. de la Zouche, the walking gentleman. Was he a nice kind of chap, the Mikado? Herr Prusinowski turned his contemplative eyes upon the inquirer with a look of placid scorn. You ain't so jolly green as to suppose I ever set eyes upon him, he said, knocking the ashes out of his pipe. I was never in Japan in my life, never nearer than a Japan candlestick. The Mikado is a safe card, he is. Who's to ask any questions about him? And so's the Cham of Tartary. I always bring them two out for the last night. Queen Victoria's legitimate business. I did perform once before the royal servants and got a fiver from the royal secretary. That is immediate patronage. I expect you'll have a clipping house, Cully, remarked Mr Tiddikins, the low comedian a small man with a falsetto voice. "'I look forward to it, Tiddikins, and if it goes over eighty, I'll stand a supper, mind that.' There was a subdued murmur of applause. "'Hot or cold?' inquired Mr de la Zouche. "'Hot,' replied the lion-tamer. "'None of your cold fowls and ham, your pastry and rubbish for me.' A sirloin of beef at top and a prime goose at bottom. A veal pie and a stewed steak at the sides and plenty of smoking hot vegetables. A prime old Stilton and a bowl of salad to wind up with and as much champagne as you can swallow with brandy and water to settle it on your stomachs. 
That's what I'll do at the Lion and Lamb if the house goes over 80 when the half price to the boxes is in. This time, the applause was louder. I always said you were a jolly good fellow, Bill, said Mr Tiddikins, and I don't mind how often I say it again. It is to be observed that Mr Tiddikins addressed the distinguished Rudolph by the simpler cognomen Bill, one of the playful licences of friendship, no doubt. It's wonderful how those animals draw, said Mr de la Zouche thoughtfully, as if he were contemplating the feasibility of setting up on his own account as a lion tamer. You've been here three seasons, Prusinowski, and egad, the people ain't tired of them yet. They seem as eager as ever. One would suppose they like to see a poor beggar hazard his life every night. There's something in that replied the hare. If it wasn't for the danger, the wild beast business would be as flat as ditch water. Were you ever frightened? asked the walking gentleman. I know what a plucky fellow you are, and that you handle those three brutes as if they were so many tabby cats, but still sometimes, you know, a man's nerve must fail. Come now, Prusinowski, were you never frightened? Never but once, answered the lion tamer. And then I thought it was all over with me. He grew suddenly grave, gloomy even, at the mere recollection waked by the walking gentleman's inquiry. Never but once, he repeated. And God grant I may never be so again. When a man in my trade loses his head, it's all up with him. How did it happen, old fellow? asked Mr. Tiddikins. Herr Prusinowski stopped to fill his pipe before answering the question. It was four o'clock upon a blazing July afternoon. Rehearsal was over. Her Majesty's servants of the Queen's Theatre Spindlecombe had dined in the intervals of the day's work at their several lodgings and had nothing particular to do with themselves until tea-time. An actor of this class has a generally rooted aversion to going home. Well, you see, the lion tamer began in a leisurely way, stopping to take a few preliminary whiffs after those three words of prelude. I was at Manchester, nigh upon five years ago, and it was my last night, and my Ben, as it might be tonight. A pause and a few more puffs. We was doing first-rate business, fizzing, and I don't think I was ever in such high spirits in my life. My pockets were stuffed with money that I'd been taking about the town for tickets, and I hadn't a place to let in my dress circle. Why, Bill, says my little woman, when I keep running in and out of our lodgings between whiles at rehearsal, taking her in a handful of money every time. You seem as if you was bewitched. I don't like to see you like that. I had a Scotch friend once as said it was a bad sign. A sign of something going to happen. Lord love your little foolish heart, I answered. It's a sign of nothing except that I'm going to have a screaming house tonight. I don't suppose there'll be a corner you can screw yourself into if you want to see me. For she's a rare one for going in front of a knight, you know, is the missus. Mr de la Zouche and Mr Tiddikins murmured their acquaintance with this domestic fact. 
Herr Prusinowski smoked his pipe for a minute or so, and then went on. Why, there's the family box, she said. That's a large private box on the opposite prompt that don't often let, unless there's Italian opera or Charles Matthews or something out of the common. No, there ain't, I answered, laughing. What? cried the missus. Is that let too? Let this morning, said I, and there's the money. Three pound three, thirty-one and six of which comes to us. For I had half share clear of expenses, same as here. Lizzie, that's my wife, you know, was quite proud to think I was going to have such a good box audience. For it isn't every box audience as will take to wild beasts. You may get schools and pious people that object to the drama, but consider a man putting his head into a lion's mouth, improving. There's quite a run upon lions in the scriptures. But as a rule, your boxes are shady. So my Liz was proud of my dress circle that night. I wonder whether it's the mayor and his family, she said, speculating about that big private box. No, I told her. It's a gentleman and a stranger, no name. Well, the night came, a sweltering hot summer evening, such as it will be tonight. The performances began with one of your talky-talky genteel comedies, and the house was so full and noisy the actors couldn't hear themselves speak. They got through it somehow. There was a short overture, and then the curtain went up for my performance. The three lions discovered in a forest to slow music, which gets around for them, and gives me my entrance and reception. You know the beasts. They were the same three I've got now. Brown, Jones and Robinson. Old Brown's a harmless old chap enough. Not a sound tooth in his head. And no more harm in him than in an elderly jackass. Jones is a deep old dodger. But there isn't much harm in him. But Robinson's a nasty-tempered beast. A brute you never can be sure of. An animal that will lick your hand one minute and be ready to snap your head off the next. Well... I got a first-rate reception. I thought the gallery would have never left off applauding. And the sight of the house, crammed to the ceiling, made me almost giddy. Perhaps it was the heat of the place, which was like an oven. Perhaps as I was standing tree or had been stood for off and on pretty well all day, I may have taken a little more than was good for me. Anyhow, I felt the house spinning round me, just as if I'd been some duffer of a novice, instead of the old stager I am. I looked at the family box, O.P., curious to see who'd taken it. There was only one gentleman there, a man of fifty or thereabouts, with a cadaverous, lantern-jawed face and light reddish hair, very straight, combed neatly on each side of his forehead. He was dressed in black, regular evening dress, white choker and all complete. And do you know, the instant I set eyes upon that man... He gave me a turn. That was a queer fancy, said Mr. de la Zouche, helping himself to tobacco from the hare's gutta-percha pouch, which lay open on the wall. Perhaps it was, but if that night was to come over again, I should have the fancy over again, replied Prusinowski. It was partly his own looks, I think, partly the way he looked at me. Not like the rest of the audience, all good nature, expecting to be amused, but with a steadfast, ravenous kind of look that made my blood run cold. 
That's a man who'd like to see something happen to me, I said to myself. I didn't give way to the fancy all at once. I began the performance, but I stole a glance at my sandy-haired, pale-faced gentleman now and then, and always found him looking at me in the same way. He had large, light grey eyes, very light and very prominent. I can see them now, and they followed every move I made, like a cat's following a mouse. He never moved his eyes from me. He never smiled. He never applauded. He sat in a half-crouching attitude, leaning over the front of the box, watching me. And he made me feel as if I had a ton weight tied to each of my legs. Everything went well for some time, though I felt I'd never done things worse. Brown and Jones behaved beautifully, but just towards the last, when I had to put my head in Robinson's mouth to bring down the curtain, I saw that the brute was in one of his nasty tempers. I suppose the heat had put him out. I know the perspiration was pouring down my face. Or perhaps he didn't like the look of that cadaverous gentleman in the private box. Anyhow, he turned nasty, and when I wanted to collar him, he bounced away from me. The house turned as still as death all in a moment, and I could see the audience was frightened. I gave a look at my gentleman in the box. He was leaning a little farther over the cushion, with something like a smile on his face. Such a smile. I could fancy anyone going to see a man hung smiling like that. Bray, do not be frightened, ladies and gentlemen,"s I said in my broken English. Old sauerkraut, the offerclede at the lane taught me that dodge. It is nothing. The beast will do all I wish. And then I gave Robinson a pretty smart cuff and began to drag his jaws open. The brute snarled, turned upon me, and in the next instant would have had his teeth in my shoulder if I hadn't given the signal for the curtain. Half a dozen carpenters rushed upon the stage and helped me tackle him. We had him safe in less than a minute, but just at that one moment before the curtain dropped, it was as near as a toucher. There was a good deal of applause. Not that I'd done anything to deserve it, for the business of putting my head in the brute's mouth was on the bill, and the audience had been swindled out of that but they evidently knew I'd been in danger and they called me before the curtain. I looked up at that white-faced devil in the private box. He was standing up, rubbing his hands in a satisfied kind of way, as if he had seen what he wanted to see. And as I passed just under him, he said in a slow, measured voice that gave me the shivers, A narrow escape hair. Very well done indeed. I congratulate you. I gave him a look, which he ought to have understood if he didn't, made my bow to the house and went off the stage. Robinson was quiet enough by this time. My man Joe Purdy had walked him off to his box and there he was growling over his shin bones, as mild a lion as he'd wish to see. Only let me get you safe back to London, my friend, said I, and I'll take you down to Jamrack's and swap you for something better tempered. Talent is all very well, but temper's worth all the talent in the world. However, that's five years ago, and there's Robinson still performing with me. 
The brute has such a wonderful gift for his profession. And his heart and soul's in it too. Take that animal in the middle of the day when he ain't particularly hungry, and he's a decent fellow enough. But come between him and his business, and you'll find out what a lion is. He's the vainest beast out, and cuts up rough if you don't get a round of applause for every trick he does. But, Lord bless you, there's no such thing as genius without vanity. He's been a fortunate to me, first and last, as that animal. Brown and Jones are nothing more than supers to him. You didn't see any more of your friend in the box, inquired Mr. De La Zouche, who was not particularly interested in these praises of the gifted Robinson. Curse him, no. By the time I changed my clothes, he had left the house. I went round to the box office to see if the box keepers could tell me anything about him. No, he was a stranger. He had taken his box that morning, finding there was no stall to be had, and paid his three guineas without a question. Now, I dare say you'll think me an out-and-out fool when I tell you I couldn't sleep that night, nor many nights after, for thinking of that man. I couldn't get his pale cheeks and lank jaws and light grey eyes with that horrid gloating look in them out of my mind. That's a fellow who'd go to see a man hung, I said to myself. That's a man who'd stand by to see his fellow creatures hung, drawn and quartered and enjoy it, especially the drawing. I hadn't a doubt in my mind that he was on the lookout for an accident all evening. I hadn't a doubt in my mind that it was through him I made a mess of it at the end. Did you never see him again? asked the low comedian. Never. God forbid I ever should. For I've a notion that if I did, it would be the death of me. I'm not a nervous man in a general way, nor superstitious either. But I'd give up the biggest haul I ever made by a benefit rather than act before that man. A queer notion, said the humorous Tiddikins. A very queer notion, echoed the gentlemanly Delazouche. He was not a fine actor, the walking gentleman, belonging rather to that class of performer who is contemptuously likened to a stick, and his dramatic path had by no means been strewn with roses. Yet he was fain to congratulate himself that it had not been beset by lions. He had been somewhat inclined to envy Rudolf Prusinowski the distinction and prosperity of his career, but just now it occurred to him that there were two sides to the picture. He rubbed his shoulder thoughtfully and was glad to think that he was exposed to the assaults of no fiercer animals than those rampant tragedians who snubbed him when he played Horatio and made light of him in Cassio, but who melted a little on their benefit nights and treated him to beer. Good Lady Decane was written by Mary Elizabeth Braddon, read and recorded by Holly Creed, with additional sound and original music by Abigail McMillan. Join us next week for Chapter 5.